I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. This is the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. All my David Ken Early and Kieran Murphy. Ready to go. Hello there, Owen. Hey, Owen, how are you? I don't know. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready, but I'm not sure my mind is all there right now. Okay. It's just that it's still trying to process a tweet sent out by the Toulon Rugby Club, three in a row champions of Europe and defending French champions, oh, yeah. in the midst of massive doping allegations being made against them. The background to this is that French radio station RTL reported that a criminal investigation has been launched by the public prosecutor following suggesting that pharmacists had been providing Toulon players with substances related to doping, including steroids. Uh, they further mentioned growth hormone in a separate statement. This has been denied by the club. They claim that the pharmacists are being investigated for social security fraud. Nothing to do with us. Uh, nothing to do with doping. RTL, though, say, look, we're standing by it. The judge in charge is a guy responsible. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, but is responsible for investigating suspicions of doping. Um, so that's the context for the tweet that I can't get over, right? <laughs> in the middle of all this, Toulon send all their denials and they, they put their main man, Murad Boujadal, the owner, out front. I have a feeling he is quite involved in the day-to-day operations there. Mm. Uh, I don't think he's a hands-off kind of guy. So, they've got uh, this tweet of Lance Armstrong's defiant photo from 2012, when he's just been stripped of all his titles, or he's about to be. He's certainly been banned from uh, from the sport for life. And he has a picture of him in his living room with all the seven Tour de France uh, jerseys, I think, framed in the walls around him. He's just, something like that, just chilling here in Austin, or whatever it might be. Right next to that photo, Toulon I put a picture of Boujadal, their owner, currently trying to defend himself against allegations that his players are doping in exactly the same pose with all the <laughs> European Cups and French Championships. Like Lance Armstrong with his yellow jerseys, our president poses lying on the couch with RCT's trophies. Mm. Explains the caption. <laughs> They're really explaining why he's doing this. I'm quite sure what he's going for there. No. I mean... Uh, Bonkers. The thing is, Lance Armstrong was guilty. Yes, yes, yes. So... Does he respect Lance Armstrong? Does he... I mean, it's clearly an F.U. to the critics, but a strange yeah. way to... It's kind of uh, go cutting back. off your nose to spite your face there, really, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, getting back at your critics is one thing, but basically, you know, aligning yourself to the biggest cheat in the history of sport <laughs> when you're embroiled in a, a, a drug scandal, probably... You know, not. I mean, if if you're going to align yourself with someone when you're in deep trouble with a drug scandal, Lance Armstrong, I'm going to say he's not in the top ten names that I'd have written down. You know, I could probably broaden that out a little to the bottom of any list possible. Uh, but I mean, that's what Toulon have have gone for there. I'm not going to say. I'd just be surprised to hear anyone say, having read that tweet. You know what? I don't think there's a whole lot to these two. Well, you see, this is the thing. It's an amazing story. And nothing about what Boujadal has said since has convinced me remotely that th- that these are fabricated. You know, we, we have to wait and see what happens with this investigation. But you, what you want to hear is some convincing denials. But so far, aside from tweeting that photo, he's said, oh, it's a conspiracy. 
Um, yeah, well, you said the thing about the pharmacist, and it, there is a social, there is an element uh, uh, away from doping, apparently wrapped up in the investigation. But the authorities, uh, the prosecutors, have confirmed an investigation is going on. They just uh, haven't confirmed that it's anything to do with Toulon potentially doping. But he also says it's a conspiracy. Bernard Laporte, uh, he's been the coach there for many years, is going for one of the top jobs in France, and supposedly there's uh, an inference that people, powerful people, don't want him to get that job, and therefore they're trying to smear the reputation of Toulon. It's just all the stuff you hear. In the land story, it's, it's all the exact same. Our, 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 we've passed the tests, all these things. Anyway, we're going to get into this with Shane Horgan very soon because I do think it's uh, it's fairly telling. But it's okay, if I know I can refocus my brain here. Today's Irish Times Rugby World Cup pullout. 48 pages, looks great. A uh, picture there of Paul O'Connell. Why do they have a picture of Paul O'Connell being beaten to a high ball by Richie McCaw? I mean, sorry, I shouldn't be, cri- be critical of our <laughs> Irish Times overlords here, but come on, you got it. He forced a knock-on from Richie McCall Richie in the way that no. only Paul O'Connell Richie McCall's got that in the bread basket. He's dominating Paul O'Connell I think here. He's, no, he's I think he's got Richie McCall under control. Do you think so? I think okay. he's got him right where he My wants apologies. him. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to skip right to the back page here, Murph, as I like to do. Uh, okay. You know the pundits' predictions. Oh, I love them. Ah, oh, yeah. Ask lots of different contributors. As long as they get people who really know their stuff. Oh, well, they have. I mean, they've got loads of people who know their stuff here, Murph. You've got the likes of Jerry Thornley, Lynn Cantwell, Matt Williams. Good, good. You got Victor Costello here. Yeah, oh, yeah. what the? Who's this? What? This is Ken Early. What? Renowned rugby punter Ken Early is going to give his predictions in the World Cup. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Well, Murphy, how about I read these out and you give me Ken's answers? Yeah, cool. Yeah, we'll do. Winner, come out runner up, please. New Zealand, South Africa. Okay, Ooh, not bad. Ballsy call. He's gone yeah. for New Zealand there, which is. He's establishing that he knows rugby there. You know, he didn't want to go. You could, say, you could say Italy for something, but then yeah. people would be like, this yeah. guy's no mark. Ireland, how far will we go? And by which route? Courageous quarterfinal defeat to New Zealand after finishing second in the group. Bit negative. Well, some would call it hard bitten realism. So, I like this guy. I like that he knows his stuff. Some would call it almost certainly what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the less confident we get going into this France game. Player to watch and why? Wasaki Naholo. <laughs> Apparently, one of his legs is broken, but he's going to play anyway. I like his style. If ever I saw an answer that had the imprint of Simon Hick. No. <laughs> well, uh, oh, that's a scurrilous remark. No, I'm just no, saying. No, I, I think you should retract that remark. I'm, retract not, the I'm remark. not saying it's Simon Hick's answer. I'm just saying that it could have been trashed out over a, a, a cup of coffee. I like to do a bit of water cooler chat about, <laughs> about rugby from time to time. And, you know, now that Wasaki's I think name yeah. came up. Now that I think of it, I do seem to recall Kate asking a number of Seemed at the time a little out of place in the conversation that we were having. Conversa- uh, questions like, how do you think Ireland are going to go in the world? <laughs> anyway, go on. I'm sure it was. Uh, most looking forward to? Ireland versus France. One of those moments when it feels like everyone's watching the same thing. They don't come along very often. He says wistfully. <laughs> yeah, that's I don't it. know if you've, you've watched uh, Strictly Come Dancing, Ken, but uh, that's you'll the, find uh, every no, Saturday these, evening. In these days of fragmented audiences, you know, you only get that sense of national oneness and communion. I mean, I don't know why I like that. I mean, is that is is that the kind of natural fascist in me that wants you know? Mm. I want this sense of everyone kind of uh, you know we all one body. One. Our individuality dissolves in this you know screaming falkish mass of uh, you know broken Irish dreams. Mm. And finally, least looking forward to cultural imperialism of overstimulated Irish rugby fans. <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I mean, just the, the way things go, you know, sometimes the old, the old heartbeat of the race brigade, mm. you know, uh, when they get when they get going, when they get beaten that drum. I mean, if Ireland were to win one of those big matches, we all know how, how things play out, uh, how things play out after that, you know. Um, but look, I'm looking forward to it, Owen. Oh, so am I, especially reading this supplement. I don't know what it is. Newspaper supplements just do it for me, Ken. Yeah. In a way that warm-up matches that we lose consistently don't, don't quite do it for me. Uh, they, do get, they do get me excited. Gordon, like, Dar- Gordon like Darcy's piece is in here as well, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, I like a good uh, middle of the supplement uh, roadmap for the tournament. I haven't well. had a chance to read Gordon Darcy's piece yet. I understand it's very good. Um, very good. It tells a great story about Trevor Brennan basically threatening physical violence against him unless he got stuck in there on his Ireland debut. Uh, maybe he was a nicer, maybe he was putting a nicer No, basically, uh, Warren Gatland had said to everyone, Ireland had a few uh, non-Irish-born players playing, to learn the national anthem. This was a big thing for, for Warren Gatland, that all of his players were to sing the national anthem. So uh, it was meant to be, you know, Dion O'Quinnigan was our captain, South African-born. So I think that was kind of a, it may have come from a captain and coach-led kind of thing. And uh, Trevor is walking. Gordon Darcy's like sauntering along a hotel corridor, not minding his own business. And uh, oh, hi, Trevor! 
and Trevor, just as he's walking past him, grabs Darcy by the throat, pulls him up against the wall and asks him, does he know or on the beat <laughs> and asks him to start singing it. And then Darcy starts laughing and then Trevor says, I'm serious. And, uh, <laughs> it's a good Trevor Brennan. Yeah. Uh, so Darcy has to sing or on the beat for him. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So that was... No, uh, That's the a good is, story. I like The it. column is, is actually really, really good and it's basically about uh, gigantic centres and uh, how much work that uh, that meant Gordon Darcy had to do in tackling. I'm going to take a punt and say that if you're listening to this podcast, you're often on the lookout for a great sports book. I'm going to go even further and say that you may well have read one or two by today's guest, Donald McRae. He's twice won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year in the UK for his book about Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens, and also one of my all-time favourites, Dark Trade, Lost in Boxing. Now, his first sports book in more than a decade, apparently, comes out today. It's called The Man's World, The Double Life of Emil Griffith. I've read it, and it's really, really, really good. I mean, Griffith is a five-time world champion. Fought. I didn't re- realise quite the scale of his, his career, but he fought more championship rounds than any boxer in history, a career that stretched from the late 50s into the 1970s, and he was gay. And if you consider that, but even today, 2015, it's still seen as a huge deal. It's a massive story in sport if a sportsman comes out. Can you possibly imagine being a gay man in professional boxing in mm. the 50s and 60s in the US? It's uh, The different strands of his life, anyway, come together in one of in probably one of the most tragic episodes that has ever happened in the ring. He was goaded about his sexuality before a world title fight against a big rival. Uh, Benny Parrott was the guy's name. He's humiliated, just felt absolutely crushed by this because it wasn't spoken about. It was sort of, I think it was known around the boxing circles. We'll ask Donald about this, but it certainly wasn't spoken about and wasn't reported because reporters wouldn't even... Uh, countenance using those using those kind of words in print. Anyway, uh, he ended up killing Parrett in the ring that night and spent the rest of his life trying to come to terms with the tragedy. I knew the very basis of this story, but not surprising at all. Donald's put an insane amount of research into it, talked to a lot of great people and presented a, a really layered portrait. So I can't wait to talk to him uh, a little bit later on today. But we're going to check in with Shane Horgan. First of all, Shane, to talk about this uh, Toulon doping scandal. It'll certainly be a scandal if, if these allegations are proven, Shane. And just on that, your what was your initial reaction when you first read this story? I mean, before you had a chance to really think about it and think of any of the broader implications. When you read it first, did you think there's a chance this is credible? Well, I think there's every chance that um, there's some... Um uh, that it is credible or there's certainly there's every chance that there's drugs in rugby and I think that um, this is a, a kind of a, a problem that's going uh, that's ongoing for people who are involved in rugby players and uh, coaches management fans I think as well and probably media as well that uh, we're sort of a very in a very comfortable position where um, we don't believe or people don't want to believe that uh, there are drugs in rugby and as a result there's a lot of heads in the sand and and um, any time that something has been come up or anything has risen around drugs in, in rugby, it, it tends to get uh, brushed under the carpet. It, it's always an isolated individual. Um, and there's, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of investigation. Uh, I th- also think as well, you know, post, um, post-Lance, everything, rugby players, administrators, owners have to realise that the game has completely changed. And this, you know... Um, oversensitivity about questioning around drugs um, in rugby has to change and uh, players and and coaches and managers all need to recognise that um, transparency is now like never before it's needed and uh, unless players and individuals in the game get on board with that um, and stop stop sort of putting roadblocks into, into investigations um, I think that it, it'll damage the sport. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Lance there because Mujad Bujadal, the Amor Bujadal, the club owner there in Toulon, um, took a slightly different tack there. He decided to essentially compare himself to Lance Armstrong. This is a staggering photograph on their Twitter account, the official Toulon Twitter account, where he's lying in a, the exact same pose as the famous Lance Armstrong photo from 2012 after Armstrong had been banned for life with, with all the seven jerseys around. I think it was back in Austin and just laying around was what Lance said back then. But they put this up in the Toulon account uh, alongside a photo of Bujadal lying in a similar pose surrounded by all the trophies and it literally says, like Lance Armstrong with his yellow jerseys, our president poses lying on the couch with Toulon's trophies. Uh, what do you think they were going for there? Uh, it's moronic. I have no idea what he was going for. You know, if you think, uh, is he intimating that uh, he he's intimating that in some way the club is in a similar pos- uh, position than uh, uh, than as Armstrong was? 
uh, it's kind of a ridiculous um, position to put themselves in. Is it just saying the whole thing is, is laughable, is it a joke, is not to be discussed? I think that's probably what he's trying to get at. He's trying to make light, trying to diminish the seriousness of it. But it is a very serious uh, allegation. There's an investigation going on, a criminal investigation going on also. Um, and uh, this idea of you know laughing away serious uh, allegations or just w- without him knowing uh, the the how that end how that ind- um, investigation will end up the findings of that investigation or potential criminal elements involved in it without him knowing that without that without that taking place how on earth can he um, with any confidence say that there was absolutely nothing going on in his club because he doesn't know um, because it's impossible to know if there's individuals or a group of individuals that may have been doing something untoward. Um, and at this early stage, without a full investigation, uh, how can how can he be so dismissive of, of what could be a very very serious, uh, with our serious allegations, and could be seriously damaging for his, his club and, and the game? The denials that he has issued are they sound so familiar. They sound very similar to any denials you hear when athletes are busted for doping it's a conspiracy was one thing apparently Bernard Laporte is going for one of the top jobs in in, in France and he feels it's a conspiracy against Laporte and also we you know we've been tested these guys have been there's been accusations before but we've been tested and we've passed the tests do we need a little bit more than that now from from people in rugby you mentioned there how uh, in recent you know now you actually have to engage with this in a bit of in, in a less dismissive fashion engage with this debate I think you do, and if you look at the investigation that the Sunday Times has had ongoing into um, doping in athletics, um, their expert they used to um, investigate the, the, the data was uh, Michael um, um, Ashton, um, Ashton, Ashton, yeah. Ashton, yeah, and he he, he was um, quoted um, a couple of weeks ago was saying this is a time for hyper transparency, and that's in athletics. I think that goes right across the board um, to all major sports and. Uh, rugby is no exception. This is a time for hyper-transparency. Um, There's no place for um, you know, putting up barriers um, and shutting people down in the same way that uh, Lance Armstrong did because we've seen that um, just because you make your case very strongly and passionately and you, know, you can talk about your own, your own morals, you can talk about um, how important it is to, you know, to be able to look your children in the eye time and time again um, the players or, and people who have, who have been holding this line have uh, then subsequently been found to, to actually be cheating. What's going to happen here, I would say, though, Shane, this is certainly what's happened in other sports, is that the players are going to start being asked a lot about this. Certainly managers are. And the stock answer usually is that, well, you know, it's not my place to talk, uh, to talk about this kind of thing. Uh, it's only recently, maybe, in athletics that people have felt more comfortable about actually talking about the issue in their sport. It's always very powerful, I think, when the people involved discuss this and when you talk about transparency is that what players are going to have to put up with now that there that there will be questions asked about the issue of doping in rugby and actually they've got to they've got to be able to talk about it no it's a, it's a, a mindset has to has to change has to occur because as I said post lance everything has changed mm. and it's now uh, it can't be seen as a slight on your character as uh, an athlete um, to be asked about doping, oh, to be asked your position on doping, and what you think of other people who have doped, and to give a, like a legitimate and, a, and an open answer to that, um, that can no longer be seen as um, controversial. It's just, um, unfortunately, it's a fallout of what's gone on in major sports um, over the last, you know, God knows how many years. So that mindset has to change, and players have to be educated that it's actually important for them to take a stand on it to not immediately when somebody mentions drugs uh, or doping in sport or uh, um, or um, individual issues that the wall doesn't come up immediately and that it's not um, it's not uh, a defensive position that they hold. That why why they, do you think that defensive position has been held up to now? Why do you think that there has been a reluctance to engage with it? Well, because I think that if uh, any sportsman, and this is, this is a valid um, complaint on, on, on their part, any time that you speak about drugs as an active sports person, you will you may have your name linked with drugs in an article or in a headline. 
and nobody wants to have their name linked with performance enhancing drugs um, in a headline. And I think that is a concern. You just uh, offered any intimation saying, well, why is there, you know, there's no smoke without fire. Why are they questioning this person? Um, I think there is a concern there that um, you may be, you may be, your reputation may be sullied uh, at even addressing it. And that there's such a, um, there's such a, such a disaster to be to be associated associated anyway in, in with drugs that uh, players get um, you know they get very very defensive on the subject. Um, I think it has to change. I think uh, that there has to be an openness about how um, how you address the ongoing question that drugs are used in sport. There's no sense in pretending that it doesn't happen because it, it certainly does. We've seen it in other sports. We've seen it in, in rugby, but I just don't think it's been highlighted as much. Yeah, and it's interesting, even when guys do test positive, as you said, sometimes it can be swept under the carpet. I, I didn't realise, to be honest, that Chitty Boy Ralapelle, the Springbok player, who, who's with Toulouse now, uh, tested positive and was banned for two years last weekend, which seems funny because if it was... Uh, a cyclist or an athlete at that level, you're talking about a Springbok, you're talking about a, a, you know, a, good, a good player without being one of the world's top players, you'd almost certainly be reading a lot about it. Maybe that's just my own fault, but I only caught wind of that story when reading up on the, on the Toulon stuff. Uh, how big an impact, if this Toulon story turns out to be true, will it make? We're talking about the biggest club in the world, really, um, uh, being accused of fairly widespread or certainly a, a, a quite a bit of doping. Well, I had a couple of things there. First on the Chili Boy thing, it's it's quite a ridiculous situation because he uh, it's not the first time he failed a drugs test. He failed a drugs test in 2010 after a game uh, against Ireland with um, Beyond Basson. Two of them failed a drugs test and they were later investigated by the sort of African Rugby Union and they were cleared. Uh, as a result of that investigation, they said they had received a, a supplement before uh, the match and that had been the reason for the drugs test. So all of a sudden, uh, a couple of years later, four years later, the same player fails a drugs test and this time he's admitted to it. Now, you have to question the rigor of that South African uh, Rugby Union investigation and, and indeed you know, why unions are still allowed to investigate their own players. And for me, there should be an investigation into the investigation, yeah, this time yeah. an independent one. Um, so I think when you see those kind of things happening um, to, as you said, you know, top-end rugby players, players with reputations, players that are well-known, and with, I think, Shitty um, Boy has maybe uh, 20 international caps, for it not to be investigated further is really concerning, and it, it does allow a culture of, of, of um, well, listen, you know, the, it's, it's not that bad, you can get away with the first time maybe, and, uh, you know, not the, not, not the massive uh, media attention that you might get in other sports. Yeah. Um, so I, I think... I think it's, we, what we found out about uh, Toulon so far is limited. Um, I think that you, we have to you know, wait and see uh, what happens in the criminal investigation and, and see um, what comes out in the wash. Um, if there is an indication that it's organized doping, I think that's really, really concerning and something that has to be addressed at, uh, at uh, the very highest level of the game. Because um, if there's evidence of that, I think um, you know, there's, there's huge, huge consequences to that. I'm glad that there's a criminal investigation going on, because if we look across all sports, um, or the major sports, they only really got down to um, getting to the bottom of, of uh, drug issues, or indeed uh, corruption issues, when it becomes a criminal investigation. And I believe this is probably the best way to prevent d doping, that the criminal investigations look into the doctors, pharmacists and facilitators, as well as the players, and who's providing these drugs, who's, where are they coming from, and uh, who's um, providing the information and the way to take them, and, and that is done by... Um, as bad as you know, it may seem by talking and dealing with uh, drug users. Like I'd like to to have the um, uh, our, the um, World Rugby talk to Chili Boy and ask him uh, and ask him where his drugs came from, who was supplying them, under um, under whose direction he was taking them. And I think that there's networks uh, that are at play, and I think they are the way to, to get to the root of uh, of, of drug use because. Um, it's not. Uh, it's very rarely. We'd like to think that these are outliers who are getting the drugs off the internet and taking them by themselves. But fortunately, that's not the case, in my belief. Yeah, that that goes back to what we we're talking about. You know, this idea. Oh well, 
our players have passed the test, so therefore there's definitely no doping going on. It, it, it's a bit antiquated, even though the testing does still show up some cases, as as in that of Chile Boy. Just lastly, Shane, uh, the, it strikes me about rugby that it, it's funny that there's been a reluctance up until this point because whatever about athletics and cycling, these sports, uh, you know, doing these performance-enhancing drugs, and especially depending on the level of supervision clearly can be dangerous health-wise, but largely you're only doing yourself damage there and people are making personal decisions, albeit sometimes they might feel under a certain amount of duress there. Whereas rugby, could you compare it more to the combat sports like boxing that your body, without being too dramatic, is a weapon in ways it can hurt opponents. And building that up, uh, building these massive bodies up, already massive bodies up through nefarious means can actually be quite dangerous. Well, certainly. Rugby is a dangerous game anyway. Uh, at a, certainly at a professional level, we've seen the level of impacts and the way um, the collisions have increased uh, in the last number of years. Um, without the, you know, on a on a scale that's not dissimilar to impacts for some of the the big um, American footballers, but without, without the protection. So there's real concerns with that. And and you know the level and the size and the power and the gains that can be made by using drugs is uh, is insane and you know i think there is still somewhere in the back of of uh, the rugby fraternity's mind that listen this rugby is a game of skill and much like you know i think you get the same from golf that it's a game it's a game of skill and, and uh, you know how much difference does it really make um, to, to taking performance enhancing drugs i think there's there's few enough sports at the moment that um a player can uh, an average player certainly can um can improve himself to, uh, by such a, a degree as rugby and i think that um that's why I'm sure the allure is there for some players because um, if you put on an extra 10 kilos and it's all muscle and it's making you more powerful, more explosive and faster, um, then it will have a huge impact on your game. And uh, I think we're still in a situation um, around rugby where um, we're quite happy to say not to ask too many questions and to go, right, um, the drug testing is there. Occasionally somebody gets kicked up on a drugs test um, and that means the drugs tests are, are working. And when we're not catching people with drugs tests the other time, that means, because, that means everybody else is clean. And we've seen through every sport there where there's been a major problem with drugs and investigation, that was originally their mindset as well until they realized that it wasn't. That wasn't what was going on. It was that people were um, finding ways around tests and people uh, were finding ways around the system. And uh, hopefully if this is a um, this criminal investigation does throw up something, um, then it'll be a, a catalyst for um, a deeper uh, view of what's going on with drugs and sport. Because ultimately, uh, those same players, and um, I may have been one of them at a, at a time where your back gets up if you're asked about drugs because you don't want to be associated in any way with them, that those players will realize now that um, this hyper-transparency that, um, that was, has been called for is necessary to uh, make their environment one that they can compete in. Absolutely. Listen, Shane, brilliant stuff. Really appreciate it. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. All right, a lot there from Shane on on this subject. I think one of the big messages is clean players need to talk about this, which is not usually done. And cheating players need to be listened to. Cheating players often are happy enough to talk, yeah. but they tend to be sort of banished from the sport uh, as a, a default reaction. Also very good to hear Shane address the idea that rugby, you know this thing that's put forward, it's a game of skill in which performance-enhancing drugs would be of limited use. Fabian Galti said this last year. Really? Okay, Fabian Galti, legend of French rugby. Yeah. Uh, rugby is a sport that demands conflicting physical qualities. It's a sport of effort that lasts 100 minutes. You have to be tough. It's not a race. It's a sport of speed, power, dexterity and communication. A sport where you have to remain clear during combat. 
I don't know any miracle product that would allow you to master all that. <laughs> okay, well, we'll start with speed and power, though. There are definitely <laughs> a few of those, uh, Fabian. If, if there's five things you need and you can get... Dexterity, I think, I, th- I think you can find something good in the market these days, Murph, for your dexterity. Even communication, you know, there's a few little... Yeah, little pills you can pop there. They can probably improve communication uh, for really, a short period of time. Yeah, I, I, it's, that's that sort of thing is just. But I mean, it's it's it's. You don't have to go to France either. Like there are Irish players who've been asked about stuff like this that are kind of saying it's just not an issue, and you can't do it. Like you 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 can't say that rugby doesn't have an issue. Keen Heaney tweeted that uh, yeah, a while back. Jamie Heaney ah, as well got very enough. defensive yeah. at a press conference when there's asked. No about problem it. in this sport. Kind of thing. You got like you just you can't say that, and I mean it 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 demeans. The sport, when you say something like that, that, oh, well, there's no issue here. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you have to confront it. And the players are the only people, actually, that can that can talk, that can talk like that where it really matters. It's like, well, I've never seen it. And, I, you know, we don't do it here. But, yeah, of course, I have my suspicions. Or, you know, of, of uh, obviously, they, it, uh, performance enhancing drugs can help us hugely. So the temptation is there and we just have to be vigilant. I mean, the way that you answer these questions is vital to how floating members of the sporting public actually look at your sport. I think it's a huge, huge thing. This has been an unbelievable week, by the way, in the world of doping scandal. Paula Radcliffe? It's an incredible week. I mean, there's this stuff happening with Paula Radcliffe, a big statement from her. She's talking about how it's almost abuse. This sort of these questions that are being directed at her now, while simultaneously saying she won't release the blood data that she says would prove her innocence. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, it, it's, you know, I mean, <laughs> Paul Radcliffe obviously was one of those English, uh, or one of the BBC uh, uh, journalists who were, you know, tweeting their reactions to Usain Bolt's athletics, sport-saving uh, defeat of Justin Gatlin. You know, look what it means. Uh, Paul Radcliffe tweeted a video. Look what it means to one of the commentators there. Yeah, Brendan You know. Yeah, there's something about if the this, if this sanctimonious, and she always has been sanctimonious about doping, if the sanctimonious athlete turns out to be one of the dopers mm. that's uh, that's almost more frustrating than Lance Armstrong turning out to be one of the one it's of the dopers amazing. and she's did she's, well, I mean, she, 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 Lance, she's saying she's obviously denying all this just to have that there Lance at least was never sanctimonious about doping you know <laughs> he 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 was obviously fascinated by it i mean there was a, there was a, who is it bob you know that, that old American newscaster. What was his name? Bob Schieffer. Bob Schieffer. There's a there's a video you can see of Armstrong back in his you know mm. champ champion days, doing an interview with Bob Schieffer, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the stage, and uh, they get into the subject of doping at like the ancient Olympics, and Lance is like really interested. <laughs> he's, like, he's he's so into it. Like he's like, oh, you know, they they had doping back then. You know, what were they using? Ah. Oh, I don't, I don't know, got cocaine, <laughs> whatever, you know. Um, so he, he, he kind of loved the story. He wasn't like, uh, you know, Paul Radcliffe once did, you know, turning up with an EPO, uh, ban- anti-EPO banner, you know, during the race or whatever. Yeah. Uh, he, he obviously was, uh, you know, harshly critical, sanctimonious of, towards people who, you know, the people who couldn't believe, I feel sorry for you. Yeah. I feel sorry for you, you can't believe in miracles. But, you know, um, he, he, Lance actually has uh, had something to say on this Paul Radcliffe thing. Just one of his recent tweets um, talking about, uh, you know, directed uh, at Digger Forum, a couple of other people on Twitter uh, who had been science of sport, you know, Ross Tucker. Yeah. Uh, they'd been talking about this Steve Magnus, um, who is a um, uh, uh, an exercise coach at the University of Houston. Uh, and he was making some points about Paula Radcliffe, some, what he felt to be hypocrisy in, in terms of the story that she's trying to present at the moment. And Lance's comment is just to say, meanwhile, at David Walsh ST, David Walsh of the Sunday Times, the movie about uh, David Walsh and Armstrong is just opening. The Chris O'Dowd. Yeah, it's opening next week. Uh, meanwhile, at David Walsh ST is awfully quiet. And he seems to be suggesting that there should be should be news here. Paul Kimmage, I saw, said he's looking forward to reading the Sunday Times this weekend. And he thinks Paul Radcliffe will be too. And Lance is uh, weighing well, in on this? I guess Lance Lance will be. But this isn't the only story that's happening at the moment, not just Paul Radcliffe. This, I, I think uh, if David Walsh is in the, the sights of Lance Armstrong, then the other, the main man who brought down Lance Armstrong is also having a very bad week, which is Travis Tigert of uh, USADA because Thomas Hauser has written like a very long article on SBNation.com uh, uh, which basically is a report on Floyd Mayweather 
and uh, USADA. And uh, the headline of the, the title of the piece is uh, Can Boxing Trust USADA? Questions around drug testing for Mayweather, Pacquiao and other bouts. And uh, it's, it's brilliant. We'll tweet a link to the, to the article, uh, but it's, it's an extraordinarily well-written piece. It's amazing stuff. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad for a few people, USADA mainly, but also Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather, who it alleges was caught uh, the day before the Pacquiao fight, having an IV uh, infusion, uh, which is illegal. Um, this wasn't even notified until nearly three weeks after the fight, at which point USADA had granted him a retrospective TUE. Right. Um, the point about these IV drips, you can use them to rehydrate, but you can use them to flush. You can use them to take performance-enhancing drugs. You can use them to flush performance-enhancing drugs from the system. Um, that's why they're illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, nothing was said about it at the time. The fight obviously went ahead. The Nevada State Athletic Commission... Uh, denied Manny Pacquiao permission to use a legal painkiller because if you remember, he had a torn rotator cuff. He had a sh- problem with his shoulder and he wanted to take a painkiller. But Again, they said, legal, oh, sorry, yeah. you, you've left it too late. You can't do that. And meanwhile, this thing was happening with Mayweather that, that wasn't even reported. Hold on a second, because the narrative always was that Mayweather was pushing hard to bring in blood testing the day before the fight. Pacquiao didn't want to do they this. They go into that. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and Pacquiao, there have been detailed articles about Pacquiao's alleged performance-enhancing drug use, but it, this has turned totally on Mayweather. Pacquiao did not want to sign up to the USADA-run um, testing program that Mayweather wanted to... Well, basically, the contract was you know, with USADA and a USADA testing form. And there's kind of a couple of little clauses in the contract which say, oh, by the way, all the other clauses of this contract can be irrelevant if we want them to be. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, uh, and basically what Mayweather has constantly been going on about, we want Olympic-style testing for these fights. So it's not just a Mayweather fight. All of his fights mm. going back years now has been Olympic-style testing. You know, he's gone to great lengths, Thomas Heiser says, to prove himself to be at the vanguard uh, but w- it's in no way Olympic style testing because you don't test until he announces the fight so the announcements of the, of the fights now get later and later say for instance this Bertolt fight that's coming up he only announced it five weeks before the date of the fight Right. so you can start testing him four weeks and six days before yeah, the start happy, so you're suggesting you can get some good work done in the previous <laughs> four so basically if he, he fights Mayweather and uh, if if uh, or he fights Pacquiao and the morning after he wakes up he is not he's not subject to any testing whatsoever until he announces his next yeah. fight. But there is a really there's a really interesting bit in this article where he's talking about um, uh, a couple of little test results that Mayweather did give, which were on the which are on the record, which are his TE ratio, okay, the ra- uh, testosterone epitestosterone ratio, and this is a marker. This is a blood marker that. Um, say WADA will use to to diagnose doping. Okay, so the ratio of testosterone to epitestosterone in the blood is allowed to be up to four to one, or the average for like a uh, the average is you know one point two one point three um, in in you know in a normal person for an athlete. You know, they're maybe they're you know a super strong kind of guy. You know, higher testosterone than average. They can maybe have higher testosterone without necessarily taking testosterone. Uh, and so you're allowed to have a ratio up to four to one. Okay. Which, and so what they, so they, they look at that ratio rather than a more expensive test, carbon isotope testing, where essentially they can, they can test for the presence of synthetic testosterone. Because if it's synthetic, it means that it's been, it's been ingested or injected. It's, it's not, it's not naturally occurring, but that test is more expensive. So what they do is they look at this ratio. Now, the thing about looking at a ratio is that if you can bring up the other side of the equation, then suddenly your ratio doesn't look that, you know, you know, you might have, you know, very high levels of testosterone, but as long as the ratio to epitestosterone. So what you do is you take epitestosterone as well. So uh, Mayweather produced these results in which the uh, TE ratio was actually below one, very low, like way below average. Mm-hmm. For you know, an average regular punter, never mind a heavyweight boxer, you know, who's, who's going into a title fight, um, which is, as Hazard saying, this is a this is a red flag. If you've got a low uh, ratio like this, it suggests that maybe you've taken epitestosterone to to try and bring the ratios back into line. You've taken a bit too much, right? So what you would then do is 
do the carbon isotope test. Okay, maybe you wouldn't usually do it, but now you're like, okay, now we actually have to test this sample for the presence of synthetic testosterone. Did you say to do that? Pfft, nobody knows. He's trying to find out, and uh, they won't say. Yeah, and the the big thing here is that USADA are earning a lot of money from boxing, a huge amount of money from boxing, but they don't actually have to answer to uh, the the basically the 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 line of power. Say the testers, you know the if if you're you know the the, the testers, the IRFU, the player, mm. it's very simple. Say in an Irish rugby team, but obviously in boxing, it's all completely mm. all over the place. And between all of these cracks, USADA can earn vast amounts of money for testing. And uh, the results are either never published or hidden or concealed or it's passed. But the book is passed. It, it, it just does sound bizarre, though, just on the basis that USADA did bring down Lance Armstrong. They, you know, USADA, WADA, all these organizations, these are the ones that we trust, Trust, which is why this That's is, why this is huge, if there's an issue here. This is such a huge story. The, there's one part of it that I found really, really interesting. Uh, Hauser quotes the Travis Tigard interview with Scott Pelley on uh, 60 Minutes uh, soon after Lance Armstrong was caught. Uh, Armstrong, Tigard declared, was cowardly and had defrauded millions of people. Pelly then asked, if Lance Armstrong had prevailed in this case and you had failed, what would the effect on sport have been? Uh, Tigard answered, it would have been huge because athletes would have known that some are too big to fail. And the message that sends is what? Pelly pressed, cheat your way to the top. And if you get too big and too popular and too powerful... If you do it that well, you'll never be held accountable. In the context of the article that, that we'll tweet it uh, as you're listening to this, that's huge. And that, show, that shows a level of hypocrisy if, uh, if, uh, if uh, Hauser's piece of tweet believed that you just you couldn't get over it. Right. Because Mayweather is, I mean, big, big, as Conor McGregor would say, big numbers, big business, yeah. right? You know, you're talking about a fight that can generate three or four hundred million dollars. Nobody wants to see this guy get banned. You know, no one involved in setting up that fight wants this guy to. Oh no, we can't have to fight. We can't have all. Yeah, but just to say it again, I, I, I don't see USADA as a sort of rapacious, money-hungry organization. They're generally underfunded. Well, Hauser dr- drug testing unit, in my understanding. Hauser's making the point that you know what's their what's their the fee they charge thirty six thousand dollars or something to take care of a um, to to take care of drug testing for a fight. You know, they could do the carbon isotope testing for uh, testosterone that I was talking about, but that would cost them more money and cut into the margin. These are all points that Thomas Hauser is making. They're not my points. You should yep, read his article. Absolutely. All right. One of our favourite writers in the world, Donald McRae, has brought out a new book out today, A Man's World, The Double Life of Emile Griffith. Donald, it's great to talk to you on the show again, first of all. Thanks for having me back on. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to speak to you again. Just, I want to start at the very back of this book. There's a line in the acknowledgements where you thank your agent and you say he, this is your quote, encourage me to write the kind of book that meant most to me. What is it about this book or about this story that means so much to you? Well, I think there's a lot of meanings to this book. I mean, the, the immediate one is that it was quite a painful um, saga of a man who was a boxer and whose fist took the life of another man. But it also is about a homosexual and the idea of these two worlds colliding, a gay man and a boxer being encased in the same body, is quite a mind-boggling one to me. And my agent just always said to me, because um, I said to him, I didn't want it just to be a pure boxing book. I wanted it to encompass sort of the social, the sexual, the psychological side of, of Emil. And he said, absolutely, it's, it's vital that you cover all facets of his life and um, hopefully I've done that. There was also a, I guess you'd call it a personal element to it in that Emil Griffith and we will talk about all the all of what you talked about there but he actually visited South Africa in in the 1970s something that I, I didn't know anything about and this was made an impact on you. Um, but, but I was uh, <laughs> 14 years old in 1975 and um, he came over with his white trainer a guy called Gil Clancy he's a famous boxing cornerman and the apartheid government did not want them to work together, a a black boxer and a white fighter. And they said that the fight, which was scheduled to be held in the black township of Soweto, was off. And Emil just said, no, I'm not accepting that. Um, My girl, the white trainer, has to come in with him. And I couldn't believe it. This hardline apartheid government buckled and gave in to Emil. And um, as a white teenager, the idea that a black boxer could force the government to change its um, hardline stance was quite impressive. I'd imagine. So was his sexuality known in the boxing world prior to the Bene Parrot fights? 
Um, it was. And, you know, talking to some of the famous old uh, boxing journalists who covered um, Emil at the, that time, I was quite gobsmacked to hear that they said it was totally an open secret. People knew that he was gay. But at the same time, homosexuality was such a taboo subject that um, even in sort of august newspapers like the New York Times, you couldn't use the word homosexual. Um, so they could not even sort of allude to his sexuality. But behind the scenes, they all knew and accepted that he was gay. This could only have made it even more painful for him, Donald. I would have thought that people knew about it, but because it was seen as such... a, a, a Nowadays, of course, it would just be printed or, or it would just be a story, whereas it was so, seen as illegal for a certain, such a depraved thing to be an illness, a psychological illness at that stage, that uh, people wouldn't even write about it. It was, too, it was too depraved to write about it, it was seen. And I think it sort of just confused him and perplexed him. He just couldn't understand it because... He was quite a simple person in, in many ways, and just a happy-go-lucky guy. He, he liked women, but he liked men more, and he couldn't sort of get his head around the fact that the fact that he wanted to dance with a man um, was seen as something that could end up with him being in jail. He just found it bizarre that that was what the law was like in, in those days, because homosexuality was illegal in all but one state of the U.S. Illinois was the exception. So I think he just found this enormously painful. If his homosexuality was uh, a dirty secret in the boxing world, that's a way to describe it. What about the other way around? How did the gay community feel about having a world champion boxer in their midst? Well, you know, for me, that was, and again, going back to your first question, my agent did say it was kind of important to speak to people in the gay community who would have followed him to hear their perspective. And talking to some guys who now in their sort of 70s old transvestites in New York who would say that in the 1960s, when they were being chucked in and out of jail for going to a gay bar, uh, the idea that one of the eight world champions, because obviously in those days in boxing there were only eight bona fide world champions, that one of those men, one of those giants, was actually gay and came to sort of all the gay bars in Times Square just kind of galvanized them and, and gave them so much hope in a dark and desolate time. He fought Benny Parrott three times, Donald, uh, and the the first time the Parrott insulted him about his sexuality was actually before their second fight, their penultimate fight, is that right? Yeah, and it's quite poignant. These two guys knew each other fairly well um, because obviously, I guess, within boxing, they were the same weight. They went to the same gyms in, in New York before they became famous. And they got on fairly well. Sometimes they would play basketball together. The first fight, Benny was the uh, champion, and Emil beat him. Um, it was quite a tough battle, but Emil became world champion. And I think for Benny, who was a Cuban and was in exile, had a wife, a young son, he knew how much money he had lost having you know, been defeated in a, in a world championship bout. And I think he felt quite embittered. And he obviously knew that Emil was gay, but before he hadn't made an issue of it. But before their second fight at the weigh-in, he allowed his sort of animosity to come out and he started to taunt Emil. And um, this upset Emil deeply. And I think Emil didn't fight particularly well later that night. And Benny won. Um, so then they had the third fight, which was the defining and the, the absolutely awful outcome. And, um, you know, the, the way into this fight was even a much darker, more malevolent kind of escapade because um, Betty went out of his way to absolutely taunt Emil and humiliate him. And Emil was just, you know, in pieces, full of anger. And um, that anger surfaced. 12 hours later when, when they met for the world title at Madison Square Garden. What sort of sense did you get of the reaction at that time in that room when Benny calls him, hisses at him, calls him Mary Khan, uh, makes all these these gestures and people can probably imagine what, what those sort of uh, physical gestures were. Sure. Emil, Emil reacts, as you say, almost heart, heartbroken. How did people, was there a great sense of shock again? Presumably, did, did people write about it? Was it, was it a, did it become a story? fascinating about it um people were shocked um but the journalists felt they actually needed to talk about what had happened and there was a famous boxing journalist called howard m tuckner who worked for the new york times so he was 
sort of at the peak of journalism in the U.S. And boxing, of course, held such power in those days. So to cover boxing in a world title fight, these were esteemed journalists. And he was a highly intelligent um, man, and he decided he would talk about what had happened at the way in in as sensitive a way as possible. He did not imply that Emil was gay. He just said that a sexual slur had been made against him. And he used the word homosexual had been part of the slur. And he was just absolutely astonished when five or six hours later on his way to the fight, he picked up a copy of the early evening edition of the New York Times and his work had been amended. And each time he used the word homosexual, it had been changed and they had used the word unman, so UN hyphen man. And he started to swear and say, what is an unman? A butterfly is an unman. A stone is an unman. A Neil Griffith is a man. How can they do this? So for me, that was so illuminating that even the New York Times could not published the word homosexual because it was considered such a taboo subject. This was, yeah, unman was seen as the palatable word for the yeah. American readers at the time. It's, a, it's staggering stuff. The fight itself, the tragic fight, he goes in there with this sort of anger. I, I don't know if... Did, did, did he ever accept himself over the years that... He, he he was in more of a rage in this fight than he would have been for a standard fight because of the slurs that he uh, had suffered. I think he found it so difficult to talk about that night. Um, but amongst those who knew him best, like Gil Clancy, who, who was always in his corner, and he was in his corner that night, I had interviewed him in Las Vegas back in 1999, long before I'd even thought about doing this book. And Gil spoke to me in such vivid terms about how that night... Emil was sort of deformed by anger and just actually wanted to punish Benny. And also he lost his cool a little bit. He, he was dominant for most of the fight, but he then got knocked down by Benny. And that sort of kind of woke him up. And Gil just said to him, you've got to beat this guy. You've got to keep punching till he falls down. And Gil said this sort of haunted him in a way because what happened is that Emil just did keep punching. And at the end, you know, there was something like 27 unanswered blows before the fight finally got stopped. I found the most poignant part of your portrayal of what actually happened in the ring that, that night was the interview that he did immediately afterwards. Benny Parrott is in one corner. Yeah. And the victorious fighter, as his custom was, custom then, his custom now, was being interviewed and looking through replays of this thing. And it seems like, I don't know if it, if it dawned on the interviewer, the seriousness of the condition of Benny Parrott. It's just, it's, it's, as you say, it's just kind of shocking, but fascinating at the same time. It was a famous commentator called Don Dunphy, who was the voice of boxing on, on television in the 1950s and 60s. And he did not quite understand, even though he knew a lot about boxing, he did not understand what had happened to Benny that, that night. He did not know he was so severely injured. And he was excited because this was the first time slow motion was going to be used at a sporting event. With now, we say used to slow motion all the time. Um, this was a big thing for the television people that they could show the end of the fight in slow motion. And they wanted Emil to explain what he was doing. But Emil, it was slowly dawning on him that the, the body of the fighter he had just knocked out was actually starting to look like a corpse. So he was totally confused and, and sort of upset and battled to get the words out. But they kept sort of saying, this is beautiful footage. Come on, Emil, can you explain to us what are you doing? And these lines, which when I've watched it again and again, they just sort of were haunting for me. He, he just says, I just kept punching. I just kept punching. And of course, we now know why he just get, he kept punching, because he was full of anger and bitterness at what Benny had said to him earlier that day. You said that he's he struggled throughout his life to relive that moment. Uh, I find it staggering. Well, I don't know if I should find it staggering. A lot of boxers, unfortunately, or a number of boxers have been in this position where they've taken the life of another man, and yet they go on and they fight. Uh, and um, some of them come from this country, indeed. The he went on had a hugely successful career did he ever shake off the guilt or whatever emotions were attached 
to what he had done that night? I don't think so, because he was so unlucky. And, and although I knew the bare bones of what had happened to him when I started to work on the book, there were some utterly shocking n- n- pieces of new information, at least to me. I found out that a year and a day after he had killed Benny, um, he fought again in Los Angeles. And on that same bill, there was another world title fight. Um, and a featherweight called Davy Moore, uh, he was also pounded into a coma, and he also died. And Bob Dylan ended up composing a song about called Who Killed Davy Moore. It was a huge, especially following the death of Benny Perrette, it was a huge incident. And the fact that Emil had been on the same bill that night and had shared the locker room with Davy Moore, it just made it all come back to him. And then years later, while he's still battling to, he's still having nightmares about what he had done to Benny, he's now working as a trainer, no longer as a boxer, and this is in 1979. He goes back to Madison Square Garden, the scene of his third fight with Benny. He's now in the corner with a, with a young fighter. And that night, his fighter uh, beats the opponent, and the opponent slips away a few hours later into a coma and, and also dies. So it was kind of shocking that Emil was just, death kept coming to him and, and sort of makes you understand how savage boxing can be, especially in those days. And that's why, in answer to your question, I don't think he was ever able to um, get over what had happened between him and Benny. What about the other side of this um, double life that you speak about, this world champion boxer who's also a gay man? I mean, the quote on the cover of the book, I kill a man and most people forgive me. However, I love a man and many say this makes me an evil person. This is something he said relatively late in life. Is it did, did that part of, did he ever publicly uh, come to terms, I guess, with that side of his life? No, I think that was, again, it was so hard for him to, to accept um, that part of his life. Well, to talk about it, and that quote um, I discussed in detail with his partner, for who had been his partner for about the last 27 years of his life. And, you know, the, Luis just said to me, it was so difficult for Emil to understand that, although many people forgave him for what had happened between him and Benny, there were so many others, including the family members of both him and Emil, who would not forgive the fact that they were, you know, lovers and they were together. And this is, that's why I used that quote on the cover, and it sort of echoes in the book again and again, because he felt um, people, a lot of people perceived him as being evil for, for loving other men, and he found that so hard to bear. You went to meet him on a number of occasions uh, around 2012, not long before he passed away. What kind of what, what did you take from those experiences? Well, it was it was sad in many ways because um, unfortunately he had fought too long and um, dementia had taken hold, as so often happens to boxers of the 1960s, 70s, and even today. Um, He's, he's, he, he was no longer able to talk at all. He was actually kind of in a waking coma in the sense that his, his eyes were open, but he could, there were no words. Um, but Luis, his, his partner, sort of said to me, could you please talk to Emil and tell him what he means to you, both as a white South African and as someone who, who loves boxing? And at first I was kind of hesitant. It seemed so kind of corny and cheesy, me sitting at his bedside, but after a while, I felt able to talk to Emil, and well, that was a one-sided conversation. Um, I think it meant a lot to me to, to spend just that little time with him. Donald, did you get the sense, because we're obviously talking about the, uh, an immensely difficult life. Uh, you, you said he was a simple man in a lot of ways, but he was dealing with incredibly complex issues that society as a whole maybe still struggles to deal with to this day and certainly in the 1950s and 1960s uh, it, it was a struggle um, did you get was there much happiness in the life of, of Emil Griffith he's obviously a very successful man very brilliant at what he did was he happy in any way? Well, this was the, sort of the uplifting part because obviously we've spoken a lot about the death and, course, and the sadness yeah. and the conflicted emotions but at the same time, to talk to some of um, the people he would go clubbing with as a, as a young gay man in the 60s and 70s, and even as an older gay man, th- these guys just had me sort of in stitches because they would just tell me the wildest anecdotes, 
going and just conveyed how happy he was when he was, as they said, with his people, with transsexuals and, and gay men and just having a ball in sort of Times Square in New York. So I think there was a lot of happiness. And even, you know, when I spoke to his one close girlfriend who'd been with him sort of in the early 1960s, and she was a lovely woman who's now in her 70s, and she just also conveyed what a special man he was and that he loved parting, he loved going out, dancing, he loved clothes. So I think there was many, many moments of, of happiness and bliss for him. But, of course, um, the sadness, I think, engulfed him in the end. All right, I see. Well, the book is called A Man's World, The Double Life of Emil Griffith. It's an absolutely cracking read. As expected, Donald, listen, well done in the book and good to talk to you again. Thanks a million. Thanks so much. All right, brilliant. That book is published today, so I don't think we could have timed it any better for you if you want to go and get it. Murph, what were you struck by there as, as, as we were chatting to... Yeah, just, just that idea that the, the, the TV company and their new gadget, the slow motion replay, oh. it's just an extraordinary... Like a coalescing of events that I just... It's hard even to fathom. And not just the fact that it was shown again and again for the viewer, but the fact that, that he has the he's, Emmy he's brought has in... And something we, watch it. something we mightn't have got to too much there um, was the other side of it. It's something that struck me when I went to open this book. I, I was thinking, well, I hope you hear a bit about the... Of course, this man has to deal with his, his tragedy, but you hear a little bit about Benny Parrott, his opponent, and the people he left behind. And you absolutely do. There's amazing stuff. I mean, Parrott's wife wanted him to give up. Uh, he, had, he had a kid. And there's an, an amazing scene late in the book. There's a documentary done, I think it's called Ring of Fire or something like this, a few years back, relatively recently, uh, in which Benny Parrott's... Uh, wife never really forgave or as far as she blamed Emil Griffith for the death and never really forgave him as far as he was aware but they did this documentary they tried to get them together she didn't want to do it but her son did so Benny Parrott's son who was a lot you know mm. uh, was a very young baby when uh, when Benny uh, when Benny died meets up with Emil Griffith toward the end of Emil's life and they have this amazingly emotional embrace and it's kind of like you, you know, yeah. our family forgives you sort of stuff yeah. you know which is uh, just so powerful but yeah, uh, it's just stuff. a relationship between that exists between fighters that that have you know like the, the Barry McGuigan line about young Ali that he mm -hmm. wins his world title in the, like the midst of the most emotional celebratory raucous unbelievable atmosphere probably that any Irish sports event has ever taken place in that he remembers to say that young Ali yeah, that he that you know that he he was he was beaten by a champion you know and like mm -hmm. that's just such an amazing thing it's a yeah, like the, those stories are just so heartbreaking, really. Aren't yep, they? the Irish Times Second Captain's football podcast is ready. That's yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? Have you ever wondered, Owen, what's it all about? Sometimes. What did you conclude? Money, status? Status. Just the the acclaim of your fellow man. To see to see your fellow man. Lining up on, on either side in a guard of honour, applauding you, looking at you with a mixture of admiration, uh, uh, envy and concealed resentment. And fear. I want them to fear me. Fear. I want <laughs> men to fear me, Ken. Um, you Not know, sure why they would. <laughs> but well. <laughs> Uh, Standing well over five and a half feet tall in well, his stocking feet. I suppose because if, if they feared you, then that's a, that's a believable, that's a credible form of respect, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, if they feared you, it's like that argument, you know, you only know that you're exercising power, that you're really exercising power when you're making others suffer. Because otherwise, how do you know that they're not just going along with, you know, doing what they would have done anyway? If you're, whereas if you're making them suffer, if you're inflicting pain and misery, then you know that it's you that's doing it. You know? You know that the power is in your hands, in a sense. So, so what's in the football podcast? We're, we're going to talk to Richie Sadler hey, about, about that kind of. <laughs> there he is. It's good of him to pop back ourselves. in. We're gonna, <laughs> we're going to talk. We're going to talk through a couple of those issues with uh, Richie Sadler. And also, you know, Wayne Wayne Rooney is he any good in that? Just before we go, Simon has sent me through uh, his daily Roger Federer quote. 
Simon okay. sends me an email every day where yeah. we're broadcasting and says, just can we Federal Federal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's an automated, I think you can get it. This on one is Google the, Alert. The father of two sets of twins has said sleeping is also a big part of his preparation. Sleeping is quite important. I make sure to sleep enough, says Federer. I believe it's really the sleep that gives you the energy again down the road. That's why the next two days are very important for me in terms of sleeping. Asked about his sleep target, Federer shows he likes to think big. Bear in mind, he's got two sets of twins, this guy. Right. Uh, in terms of sleeping, hopefully 10 hours. 10 hours? That's wow. a lot of sleep for a man with four kids. He's What's got the Napoleon line, Ken? Which? About sleep. How, how much uh, uh, sleep you should get. Six hours for a man, seven for a woman, and eight for a fool. Uh, is that so, it? Something, yeah, something along those lines. I don't know, though. I think uh, I think seven hours is a, is, a, is a minimum. Ten, I don't know. I suppose Roger Federer has a pretty active lifestyle, you know, physically active. Maybe he needs a bit more sleep. I think ten is yeah, a bit lazy. Saying, I, mean, I think Roger Federer is a bit slothful. Yeah, I, I, think I, think lazy. I think he's lazy. Uh, I think he's lazy. You're right. All right, that's it for this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed bringing it to you. Didn't we, Murph? Uh, we did, On Didn't we, Ken? Mm. Mm. Great. You finish good. your coffee there? Sorry, yeah. Just, just, uh, there's just this last bit we have to mm. say goodbye to our listeners, and then we can drink all the coffee you want all day long, Ken. <laughs> Thanks for being Have a listen to that football podcast. If you have time, we will talk to you again on Monday. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 